2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like oil, accidents and scabs.
3: I love the idea of doing a history of scabs. Or yearning, earning and gurning. I feel that those are all topics that we could do now, particularly gurning. Or slide, wide and pride. I feel particularly
2: proud at the moment. Do you, Sam? I'm not sure if I do, but... um... Weirdly, now you said it, I think I might. I, I'm, um. <laughs>
3: I feel deeply proud. I feel deeply proud of my university, the University of Plymouth. They are so getting behind this crisis. We, in the faculty I'm in, we're producing visors in this new, using this new 3D printing technology. Visors going off to NHS staff. The medical school is doing research into COVID-19. We're lending kit. The army came and requisitioned a load of stuff for testing the other day, so I feel deeply, deeply proud. And everyone is getting behind this as an institution. So, yeah, it's a, it makes me feel very humble, Sam. Very humble. Oh, well, that's
2: good. Well, I'm, I'm quite proud of our little homeschooling things we're doing. I'm we've very... just done the we've I'm... just done the history of slime. So, if any of you've got kids, then please get them to listen to our homeschooling ones. We've just done uh, slime and darkness and fire, invisibility. Invisibility, Um, I've got a list here. I want to do spitting, uh, scabs and accidents and buns as well. Oh, love that. Do you know,
3: we've also got to do something on Norman Castles for my... Colleague Will. Will is one of those very clever scientists that we talk about who has a son who's about key stage three and is learning all about Norman castles. So we've got to do something fun for him as well. Well,
2: I I think we could do the history of hills for that. Excellent. We will be
3: following, however, the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. And because it's near Easter, because it is Easter, who knew that the history of eggs is in fact all about? medieval superstition, the super wealthy, the history of Christianity and rebirth, the Beatles, and of course, who could forget them, the Beastie Boys. It's all about their song, The Eggman and Eggfights. Or that the history of the bed is about portals to and from this life. It's about fishmongers and privacy.
2: It's about historical education and empire. Uh, do you know what the, the history of the bed is actually one of the ones, uh, one of the the episodes we've done that I am most proud of. I thought it was particularly good. It was quite early on, wasn't it? It and was early we, on. Yes. We, we suddenly realised there were so many different ways to think about the bed, which I loved. Uh, all very good. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, the man not sitting opposite me, because we're the other end of town, we are no longer podcasting in the same room. Let's just say, if history was a novel, he would be its Watership Down. <laughs>
3: Thank you, thank you very much, Sam. It's the you could you could take <laughs> that any, any
2: way you could take that any way you want. It's a professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James.
3: <laughs> Hello, Sam. So the man not sitting opposite me is the Easter Bunny, Father Christmas, and Saint Valentine himself, all rolled <laughs> into one. It is the truly famous historical adventurer, the wonderful friend, Doctor Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, James. Are you coping? At the, with everything that's going on at the moment.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm coping very well. Um, and while we're talking about eggs, actually, I've uh, um, rabbits and eggs and Easter things. There's a, yes. there's a farm shop just around the corner, which I've started going to because it's it's less frightening than Morrison's. And I've started <laughs> eating their most delicious eggs. So my mornings oh. are good because I get to have some yummy eggs. Excellent. But today we're not doing eggs. We're going to do rabbits, aren't we? Because it's Easter. We and, are going to do
3: rabbits. An Easter special.
2: Um. So let's start with a bit of a brainstorm about how on earth you can study the history of rabbits. It uh, just as a warning here, it's surprisingly interesting.
3: <laughs> it is surprisingly interesting. It is about um what's it about? It's about cony catchers. So thieves in Elizabethan England and the pamphlets oh, that were produced. Yes, it's about well no well it's about um conies were was another another word for rabbit and it was a rabbit that was raised and was supposed to be uh, for the table. Um, and these coney catchers was a nickname for the thieves. And there was a sort of spate of sixteenth and seventeenth century printed pamphlets that had all sorts of tales about these rogues. So it's about it's about those. Think, look at look up Robert Greene, the prose writer, and his pamphlets.
2: But that makes you think about law. So there's obviously some kind of law protecting who owns rabbits. Yes. If someone's if someone's getting in trouble for stealing the rabbits, then there's law around rabbits, and that law has a history. So there's a there's an interesting history of ownership, control, land, poaching, theft Absolutely. there as well. Absolutely. Um, breeding, the Victorians bred them. They were the first ones to... to... Uh, well, there is some evidence that they happened in the medieval period, that they created uh, interesting rabbits with new different types and colours of fur. So if you're interested in in uh, animal breeding, whether it's dogs or cats or bunnies, um, that is another a whole strand of history you can look, in, look into. We I, I went somewhere with my daughter many years ago and they were advertising giant bunnies. Mm. And I, I thought that such a thing couldn't possibly exist. But, but they, they genuinely did have giant bunnies and they were like the size of a small dog. It was amazing. Oh, I really oh. wanted one.
3: <laughs> well, take, take that idea of, of breeding. So there's then rabbits for food. There's the rearing of rabbits. There, there's all that sort of part of breeding, which brings us into poaching, catching. Uh, but there's also, it also takes us to the control of rabbits. So what happens when rabbits breed too much and start taking over and become invasive? So there's the introduction of myxomatosis, for example, in Australia, or the rabbit-proof fences that were built to divide the country up so that rabbits couldn't cross them and, um, and munch up all the crops. Or, take it another way, there's misogyny and rabbits. So you could, you could do a history of Playboy bunnies, uh those sort of bartender type um uh women who at Playboy events. Uh, the, the sort of the magazine uh by Hugh Hefner um and famously had a sort of Playboy mansion uh populated by um his his playmates, uh, some of whom were dressed up as bunnies. So male misogyny.
2: Yeah, well and also the rabbit is a symbol as part of it, and it's important. That's a there's a long medieval Yes, uh, history of images of rabbits in art as well. A particularly famous one by Titian, um, the Renaissance Italian painter, called the Madonna of the Rabbit, which is an mm. amazing one. And you've got Mary there sitting with a with a very beautiful white rabbit, which is a symbol of. Fertility. Uh, the one thing we do know about rabbits is that they breed and they breed and they breed and they breed. So it's long been a tradition. A, a similar for fertility. Also, there's, there are some rabbits on Greek vases I came across as well. Mm. Again, similar, similar sort of symbol. Uh, but that that particular painting, I'm quite interested in this actually. It was owned. Well, it was actually commissioned um, by Federico II of Gonzaga in around 1513. He was the ruler of the Italian city of Mantua. And the interesting thing about this is that. Um, Around about 1627, they had a huge art collection. They commissioned art from Tyson and many, many others, and it was all bought by Charles I. But then, when Charles I was executed by Cromwell uh, during the English Civil War, it was auctioned off, and then it was... This was the same time that, you know... um, that Cromwell is is destroying the crown jewels as well. So he's he he melts down lots of the crown jewels and he's selling off a lot of the king's private collection of art. And at the auction, that particular painting is bought by Louis the Fourteenth of France, which is why it is now in the Louvre in Paris.
3: Hmm.
2: Hmm. I mean, thinking about
3: literary and visual representations of rabbits, a little more pop culture for you is the White Rabbit and Alice in Wonderland, Peter Rabbit and the Flopsy Bunnies, or even my personal favourite, uh, the cartoon rabbit, Bugs Bunny. He with the famous tagline, What's Up, Duck?" Or yeah. we could even have a look at the origins of the Easter Bunny or the, the Easter Rabbit or the Easter Hare, which is a sort of folklore tradition or figure, a symbol of Easter. And... My daughters still believe in the Easter Bunny, the Easter Bunny that comes and brings Easter eggs at Christmas. And this originated in, in among German Lutherans. And rather like um, rather like uh, Father Christmas deciding whether children had been bad or good, the Easter Bunny would decide whether children had been bad or good or disobedient, and then uh, would decide on whether he would or would not leave them. Um, leave them eggs. So it's a sort of little sort of, there are similarities to, to Santa Claus here. Yeah, it sounds like it. I... From Europe, it then spreads across to America in the 18th century with Protestant German immigrants uh, or the Pennsylvania Dutch, that sort of area of, of Pennsylvania. So it, 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 it goes there and then, of course, explodes all over the place. You can't You can't enter a supermarket or shop in the United States at this kind of year without being assaulted by a parade of Easterware. Easter baskets, things to stuff in them, um, all sorts of pink, purple, yellow coloured eggs, absolutely everywhere.
2: It's interesting that it, it has developed in a different way because Easter's, I mean, there are obviously Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and stuff around here, but not to the same scale of as they are in America. So something happened there in you the past. You haven't been to James. our house. You haven't. I really to our ho-
3: we have. A, we have a shed load of Easter traditions. Do you have, Sam, an Easter tree? Do you have no, an Easter we,
2: tree? We, 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 we no, uh, we don't have any type of Easter oh, tradition at all.
3: We have an Easter tree and all sorts of little decorative eggs go on it. We have Easter egg hunts in the garden. Uh, we have a simnel cake. Uh, with little Easter eggs on it. I'm, I'm all about the seasons, Sam. I'm all about the seasons and any excuse for celebration.
2: Yeah. But before now, we move on, I'd, I'd also want <laughs> to just mention the uh, a little project and a wonderful book by my friend Chris Chapman, who's a, who's a photographer, lives up on Dartmoor, mm. and he's written a book called The Three Hairs. And I think I've mentioned this before in a previous uh, podcast on Easter, but I, if you haven't heard that, I just wanted to say it again. This is all about the... Is an image of three hairs. I know it's not a bunny, but it's close enough. Um, very well well known image. You've got three hairs all together, and it's like a trompe l'oeil thing. So you've got three creatures sharing three ears, but only but each one of them has two. So there are only three ears. But however you look at it, it looks like each hair has two ears. It's a it's a wonderful image, and they've found all sorts of examples of this in churches in Devon. So if you are anywhere near. Idsley, Ashrini, Samford-Courtney, Sprayton, Cheriton-Bishop, Newton-St-Sires, Broadclist, Bridgeford, North Bovey, Chagford, Throwley, South Torton, Widdicombe-in-the-Moor, Ilsington, Tavistock-Kelly, Cote Heel, and in Dorset, Corf Mullen. Then those churches, go, and go to those churches and ask to see their three hairs. You might find it on the ceiling, you might find it on the end of a pew, you might find it carved into a door. But they've all got these extraordinary images, and we believe that the images came down the Silk Road. There are examples of them in the Magao Caves in Dunhuang in China, many, many, many thousands of miles away, and that they came across, spread from Europe, and ended up in churches. They're not just in Devon. There are lots of examples of them in Devon, and they're all over the country. But if you're interested in that, there's a book called The Three Hairs, A Curiosity Worth Regarding by Tom Greaves, Sue Andrew, and Chris Chapman, and it's worth having a look at.
3: Excellent, excellent. Well, I want to start with a, with a book, that I've been reading. And in fact, this is the reason that we're doing rabbits because the lovely people at Oxford University Press sent us a brilliant new book by the historian Karen Harvey called The Imposterous Rabbit Breeder. What a brilliant title. Mary Toft and the 18th and 18th century England. And it is absolutely superb. It's one of the best micro histories that I've read. So uh, you take a sort of very small topic and you use it to explore something that's much broader. And I want to start with an extract from a newspaper called The Daily Journal, on Monday the 14th of November, 1726. Okay, listen to this. From Guildford comes a strange but well-attested piece of news, that a poor woman who lives in Goldalming, near that town, who has a husband and two children now living with her, was about a month past, delivered by Mr John Howard, an eminent surgeon and man-midwife living at Guildford, of a creature resembling a rabbit, but whose heart and lungs grew without its belly. About fourteen days since, she was delivered by the same person of a perfect rabbit, and in a few days after, of four more and on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the fourth, fifth, and sixth instant of one in each day. In all, nine. They died all in bringing into the world. Mr. Howard keeps them all in spirits, and we hear he intends to present them to the Royal Society. The women hath made oath that two months ago, being working in a field with other women, they put up a rabbit, who, running from them, they pursued it, but to no purpose. This created in her such a longing to it that she, being with child, was taken ill and miscarried. And from that time, she had not been able to avoid thinking of rabbits. The said woman had has been delivered of more than five rabbits in all fourteen. Mr Molyneux, the Prince's secretary, is, we hear, gone thither by His Royal Highness's order, to bring a faithful narration of the affair. This is quite extraordinary. It was a story that captured the imagination in the early 18th century. And it involves at the heart of it, a working class woman from this part of Surrey called Mary Toft. So the claim is that she gave birth to rabbits. She's then examined by male doctors, including those reporting to the King, George I, The story is then widely printed. So it's not just in this daily journal, but it crops up everywhere. It then turns out to be false. It's a hoax. And the press turn upon this woman. She's demonised. She's punished for her crime. So she's locked up in Bridewell Hospital, where she has to undergo hard labour. And it then becomes something that at first was treated seriously by Enlightenment cent of men of science, so it's a sort of scientific medical curiosity connected to the belief that women could give birth to monsters, so this idea of monstrous birth and then it's looked at she's looked at as something of a figure of ridicule and and occupies a space around satire and so this book is a kind of micro history of this, and what 's wonderful about it is it takes this sort of little incident. And it contextualizes it as a cultural episode in history and sets it within a wider context. And it starts by examining the location she grew up in, so Godalming in Surrey. It then looks at the family, the family background, the women who surrounded her. It looks at, tries to recover her own story, her own voice throughout. And there are all sorts of competing representations or narratives here the male doctors the legal process that she goes through and we have at the heart of it three transcripts that are called interrogations of her where she basically confesses to the crime that she has committed or basically to to this hoax the problem there is that of course her voice is all tied up in the sort of the way in which the the legal clerks record it but nonetheless you are able to recover her right at the heart of it. It's also a way of looking at the nature of 18th century society and at the heart of it also is understanding the meaning of rabbits within this kind of society. So I've been reading a couple of things, um, Mark Bailey's The Rabbit and the Medieval East Anglian Economy in the Agricultural History Review, nineteen. 88 and John Shields, Rabbits and Agriculture in Post-Medieval England in the Journal of Historical Geography, 1978. You should all have a look at those. Brilliant. But what it shows is that the rabbit, as we were saying earlier on, Sam, in our little introduction, was an object of theft and a focus for protest. And the meat and fur from rabbits had, and I'm reading here from Harvey's book, the meat and fur of rabbits had long been a rare commodity and symbol of elite status. And this continued into the 18th century, she writes, uh, even as private commercial warning was established. So, So basically, this whole episode revolves around stealing and poaching of what are seen as elite commodities. And Toft's husband at around this time is accused of poaching. So that's something that's very important. But also what's fascinating is the way in which rabbits, because they they would often, they would be privately kept by wealthy landowners, but they would also not obey strict land boundaries themselves. So they would go across people's land and start eating, eating crops, and things on other people's property. And so there's a great sort of dispute about, you know, who owned these warrens. And so one of the theories about this is that actually it's an opportunity for social unrest and a way of of, um, sort of disobeying or turning upside down the social order. But also the the extraordinary thing is how this, this story gets into print culture at this time and there's a really brilliant engraving by William Hogarth, uh, uh, an engraving called Concinculari or The Wise Men of Godalman in Consultation which was produced in 1726 and what it does is it recreates this scene of her being investigated by these various men, these male doctors and you know, they, they really are being quite intrusive in how they are examining her. And it's it's in it's in great detail. So you see her lying in a bed, surrounded by these men, the floor is just littered with rabbits. Um but it's it also appears in all sorts of pamphlets. So pamphlets such as Much Ado About Nothing or A Plain Refutation of All That Has Been Written or said concerning the rabbit woman of Godalming, or The Discovery or Squire Turned Ferret, published in 1727, or A Letter from a Male Physician in the Country to the Author of the Female Physician, or Pudding and Dumpling Burnt to the Pot. And it's
0: written about... Hold up!
1: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince.
3: Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. By none other than the famous poet Alexander Pope in his The Discovery or The Squire Turned Ferret, which is very sort of satirical and mocking, And really what he's doing here is he's teasing the male doctors. Um, And I'll just read you a couple of little extracts of it here. The surgeon with a rabbit came, but first in pieces cut it, then slyly thrust it up that same as far as man could put it. The instrument himself did make, he raised and levelled right, but all about was so opaque it could not aid his sight. So it's, so it's the way, again, what you've got is the way in which these serious medical figures at the beginning absolutely believe it. And it's an experiment. It's a test case to see if this kind of thing actually happened. And then they turn out to have egg on their face and they seem, you know, almost ridiculous. But what it does, as I said, is it takes this one bizarre example of a woman giving birth two rabbits to then unlock local society enlightenment medicine print culture and wraps it all up at the heart of it is this story of a a poor woman living in surrey who's on the the sort of margins of society and also it's a, it's a very intimate look at birth the bed the bedchamber um um uh and and her actually um her actually having a miscarriage uh, early on in her life and that is described in in quite a lot of detail so you're actually able to get into the everyday life of an ordinary 18th century woman via the history of rabbits sam
2: yeah, it's good, isn't it? And it's really important and interesting that they chose whoever, you know, wherever the story came from, that it was a rabbit. I mean, there is real significance to yes. to, the, to the, the choice of the animal taking. If we're going to make up a story about a woman giving birth to an animal, what are we going to choose? And the fact that they chose a rabbit is significant about the history of it. Um, it's a, I love the story. It's one I did in my um, Britain's Outlaws series. Mm. And um, I'm just looking on the iPlayer now. There's a clip of me talking about it. Um, So, just Google um, BBC iPlayer, Britain's Outlaws, go to the homepage of that, hit clips, and then there's um, a little two minute clip of me talking about the rabbit woman. Uh, Something I, I very, I remember doing. I really, really enjoyed that. And it's just one example of a historical source that, you know, allows you to get into rabbits. And as i'm always asked with how we do these histories of the unexpected how do you do the history of slime that's actually about industrialization and lubrication for machines how do you do the history of rabbits well i just wanted to talk a little bit about the the various ways or the you know the the sheerly enormous number of options that you can actually use to get into the history of rabbits uh, first up obviously there you know how do we know when they were introduced there's some suggestion they were introduced by the Romans there's some suggestion, that, um, suggestion they were introduced by the Normans perhaps they were reintroduced perhaps they died out well the way to get at that is by looking at rabbit bones in archaeological contexts mm-hmm. we know that in excavations at Boxgrove in West Sussex they found um, rabbit remains that date back to the Paleolithic period so about 500,000 years ago and then we've got other examples Linford in Norfolk you've got Roman rabbits uh, and, and a fabulous fourth-century mu- mosaic at Corinium Museum in Cirencester that shows a rabbit. So you've got some depictions of rabbits from from the period as well, going uh, back to to mosaics. But I've particularly been interested in the way that rabbits have affected the geogra- our geography, mm. and I have been thinking about that because. I live in Exeter, and one of the things I like doing is to cycle up the river. And one of the places you can cycle to is called Dawlish Warren. And Dawlish Warren is a spit of land that sticks out the mouth of the ex-estuary. And it's called a warren because it is a warren. It was a medieval rabbit warren where people bred warrens. And there's a geography to it there. It's really interesting. And it also can be explored elsewhere. It's not unique by any any stretch of the Im- the imagination, there are some wonderful examples of them on Dartmoor as well. So you can look at the where these things were sighted, and that's interesting. So Dawlish Warren is by the sea, and you've got a natural, good sand Warreny environment. And actually, what happened there is you know it's well known for for birds and also for its rare wildlife. James, it's it's a, it's a, be- I do, it's a beauty. Yes, it's a beauty spot. Well, the rare wildlife is there because there were centuries of rabbits eating everything that has allowed this rare wildlife to then grow. So the, the the fact that you're looking at these rare grasses, I'm afraid I don't really know much about it, but whatever, it is, whatever it is rare to look at is purely because it was inhabited by hundreds and hundreds of rabbits for a very long time. The Dartmoor ones are really interesting. There are loads of them, particularly in southwest Dartmoor. And they're fascinating because they are almost all next to prehistoric settlements which is really intriguing. So you've got medieval uh, landowners, land users, reusing land for different reasons, but which serve the same purpose as prehistoric settlements. They need to be well-drained if you're going to be building a pillow mound. So understanding how these things were built is interesting. You either have a natural place to keep rabbits like Dawlish Warren, or you have to make places for them to burrow in and to live Mm. in. And you need well-drained, sunny slopes, which also is exactly what they wanted in prehistoric times for the prehistoric settlements. Ideally, having them um, well away from agricultural crops is important. So there are very few examples of Warrens in the middle of fields. So having them up on the slopes on Dartmoor is a very sensible place indeed. And the other thing is that they need stone to actually build the various features that you you need for a man-made. Rabbit warren, which is walls to keep the rabbits in, pillow mounds for for them to make little little um, little burrows, and also vermin traps so that the rabbits themselves are not hunted. Mm. Um, absolutely fascinating. So the, the way that they are constructed, the location that they're constructed, and you can then look into the history of that. And I found some wonderful stuff here about how advice on how to build rabbit warrens. The burrows or berries as the warrener calls them are formed by first digging a narrow trench with small ones branching from it on each side but not opposite each other. Large slabs of turf are then cut and with these the little trenches are covered. Over this is heaped a mound of earth and the burrow is finished. A few holes are made for the rabbits to enter and they quickly take possession of their new abode. Here's another one from 1893 which is what I liked. This is by a guy, a warrener. The whole business of this. this is the guy in charge of the warren at Wortley Hall Park in Yorkshire. Whether the rabbits are to be raised for sport or for the market, the earth mounds for the rabbits to breed in and natural sunny banks where they exist must be laid out with some degree of order so as to facilitate shooting operations and to make the catching up of the rabbits in large numbers easy and convenient. Burrowing here and there and everywhere all over the pasture must be checked and burrowing in flat ground stopped altogether and both may be done by the person in charge blocking the holes up with his foot as he finds them. Barrows in flat ground are the causes of serious loss, as during heavy and sudden rains the holes become reservoirs, into which the water quickly drains and drowns the young rabbits. And now as to laying out the barrows. First, the dry, sunny banks should be utilised, and if colonies are not already established in these, holes should be made a few yards apart by boring into the bank horizontally with a long planter's spade to the distance of a yard, or at least out of arm's length. The rabbits will do the rest. It goes on and on, but it's a wonderful glimpse into the life of a warrener, a man who whose entire life was dedicated to to creating these warrens, which are now all over our landscape. And one of the interesting things of the warren, we mentioned walls earlier, is how you mark it out on the land. So there's a whole history of how you identify your land and how you also protect it. So a lot of the ones up on Dartmoor, particularly, their borders, their boundaries, all use rivers and streams, and just you know a few areas of 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 walling. But it means that a lot of them are actually are are, are surrounded by rivers, which is fascinating. And how you mark out a river itself has its own history. And you can do all of this through things like looking at the um, the history of the Ordnance Survey. Uh, the Ordnance Survey has got a wonderful website where you can look at layers. historical maps so say you live in Exeter where I live you can look at the current map and then you can do a map regression it's called you can go back in time looking at all of the early ordnance survey maps and you can see how things changed. and features like rabbit warrens are there
1: Hmm.
2: and one other aspect to this which I really liked is um, on the left bank of the river Avon this again is on a map there is a little hut which is a warreners kind of guard house it's wonderful uh, here is a warrener's shelter, strategically sited so the sudden emergence of man, blunderbuss, and dogs would put the raiders to rout. So we've kind of come full circle there, James, back to people stealing the rabbits. But you can imagine someone <laughs> shivering in his hut, trying yes. to fight off, fight off <laughs> these people. Um, and I love that. Just you know, putting, always been fascinated. I'd, I'd really secretly like to be a landscape his, landscape archaeologist. I think it'd be wonderful.
0: It um, would be brilliant.
2: But the my my, of... my friend my friend Chris Chapman actually the photographer on Dartmoor he took me up to a little stream um, yes. where they, uh, they, they, they they each year the people who owned the land marked a boulder saying that their land came up to this particular boulder in this stream and they've got years and years of these little marks on this boulder near <laughs> Throwley in Dartmoor everyone should go to Throwley. it's very beautiful
3: <laughs> not at the moment though
2: no <laughs> so.
3: I, for, for me, Rabbits takes us to Australia in the first half of the 20th century. And it relates a rabbit-proof fence, Aboriginals and something called the Stolen Generation. And I'll unpack this for you in stages. So the most important thing to understand, or one of the most important things to understand, is that during this period... Between about 1901 and 1907, there was a pest exclusion fence constructed in Western Australia, known as the State Barrier Fence of Western Australia, also known as the Rabbit Proof Fence. And this ran across the countryside um, and basically stopped pests crossing over. It was extraordinarily long. It was about 2223 miles long over 3000 kilometers uh about by about um 1907 so that's the that's the first thing the second thing to understand is this idea of the stolen generation in australia during this period and the stolen generation also known as the stolen children was basically an australian state federal practice of taking australian aboriginal children and removing them from their families so government agencies church missions did this it was it was legal in parliament they removed them so these were basically children of mixed mixed race so they were australian aboriginal and what they did was they took them away and brought them up in institutions to bring them up effectively as, uh, as Australians and so basically they removed them from their, from their parents. It was very widespread uh, and deeply traumatic. Now the connection between the stolen generation and the rabbit-proof fence comes from a book by a woman called Doris Pilkington, and it's called Follow the Rabbit-Proof Fence. It's an Australian book published in 1996. It was then adapted into a film which I saw uh, a while ago, a film that came out in 2002 called Rabbit-Proof Fence, and it is based on a true story. And it is basically about this family whose girls, Molly and Daisy, and their cousin Gracie, were forcibly removed from their families in a town called Jigalong and taken to a place called Moore River. Um, and what they do, so they're removed from their parents, and what they do is they escape from this government settlement in 1931. And the way that they find their way home, over almost a thousand miles, is by following this rabbit-proof fence. Absolutely extraordinary. And there we are. There's how you connect rabbits and the removal of Australian Aboriginal children from their parents.
2: It's a fascinating story, isn't it? I know a bit about this. I, the, they know, the kids know about the fence because Molly's dad, who's white, um, works on the fence. So the fence wasn't just created. The, the, the problem with it was primarily is that all of the rabbits started burrowing under it. So actually, it's one of the greatest examples of folly. Um, yes. in, in history. It just didn't work. They yeah. spent all of this time and all of this money building this fence. It didn't work. But they then employed huge numbers of people to maintain or try and maintain the fence. But there are yeah. hundreds of millions of rabbits. So Molly's dad's a white Australian. Yeah. Uh, well, a, 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 a white man who's come there. And his mum is a native... Um. Uh. Is, is she, she is an Aborigine. So Molly is one of these, uh, what the whites described as half-caste half-goss um, kids, who were then taken to the Moor River settlement. So they know about the fence. They know it runs up the country. So they, the even though they walk a 1,000 miles home, they just know they've got to get to, to the fence. And the fence, in some respects, becomes this symbol of, of hope for them, which is fascinating. And what's great about it is that Molly, um, she does the walk, and later on, her, she has a daughter called Doris, who talks to her mum about her mum's experience, and and Doris writes the book. And the book's a wonderful source for understanding the way they were thinking about the fence, understanding the way they were coping with um, this appalling way of um, essentially removing the Aboriginals um, by, by, um, by, by taking them away. I've got a couple of quotes of it from here. From when she was young, Molly had learned that the fence was an important landmark for the Mardujura people of the Western Desert, who migrated south from the remote regions. They knew that once they re- reached Billanouka Station, it was simply a matter of following the rabbit-proof fence to their final destination, the Jigalong Government Depot, the desert outpost of the white man. The fence cut through the country from south to north. It was a typical response for the white people to a problem of their own making. Building a fence to keep the rabbits out proved to be a futile attempt by the government of the day. For the three runaways, the fence was a symbol of love, home and security. And here's another wonderful quote. Again, it helps you understand the way uh, the Aboriginal society was um, thought and believed and understood. Numbers, dates. In fact, mathematics of any kind have little or no relevance in our traditional Aboriginal society. Nature was their social calendar. Everything was measured by events and incidents affected by seasonal changes. For example, summer is pink eye. I think that's a wonderful way to finish because we started off talking about Easter um and you you said you were influenced by the seasons, James. So you've got a diff- different way of thinking about things there, which I absolutely love.
3: But before we go, though, have you heard about the Leicester Hare Hunt? No. Ah. There are records of of it being something in Leicester on Easter Monday until about seventeen sixty-seven. And I'm reading from my favourite book on, on customs here customs that follow each day of the year. So I'll read it here. The mayor, corporation and officers would proceed to a piece of land called Black Anise's Bower Close at the edge of Leicester Forest to witness the annual hare hunt. Now, in this hunt, they didn't use a hare. Instead, they used a dead cat that had been (laughs) treated with aniseed water. And this dead cat was then trailed on a rope Around the town, through all the streets and alleys, by a rider, and the hounds and huntsmen were then let loose to follow the trail. So, how about that? Amazing. A dead cat, yeah. a dead aniseed smelling cat dragged around Leicester.
2: Wow. wow! I know. Well, I've enjoyed that rabbits. Very good. Um, everyone have a lovely Easter. Have a lovely, lovely Happy few Easter, days off. Don't go anywhere, stay in. Um, uh, You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Dable.
3: And you can follow the pod on at unexpected pod.
2: So do please find us on social media. Check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. We've got a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash historiesoftheunexpected. If you would like to um, help and support us, uh, we do need the help. We're um, saving up to be able to record in a decent studio when this is all blown over. And at the moment, we're trying to produce maybe one a day for these podcasts. So we'd really appreciate any help you can offer. And also, please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps. Yes, and we're particularly interested in doing
3: homeschooling at the moment. So we're doing a series of homeschooling episodes. We think this is really really important at this time when everyone is locked down. If listen to them, but also if you have any ideas of things that you would like to hear, get in touch with us and we will try and produce them. Bye everyone. Bye bye.